You know, I have never been much of a long-distance runner. Not my thing, not uh, anything I've really ever enjoyed. But I admire those who are runners and good runners. And no matter, you know, the level at which they run, I'm always like just, you know, yeah, go, you know, when I see somebody. And, and one morning when I was driving to work, I coming down Oceanside Boulevard, from uh, where I live to the church here, and I saw three different runners. The first guy was probably, I would guess, in his mid-40s, and he was wearing a a gray t-shirt and gray gym shorts, you know, like the kind you'd get in high school, and regular tennis shoes, you know, that you just would get anywhere. They weren't running shoes, just kind of regular tennis shoes. And he was trudging along as he was running. He's running, and it just looked looked like just pain was on his face. And it's probably how I look when I try to run, you know, the same type of thing. And he just looked like he was hating every single minute of that run. And and if I could read his mind, I'm thinking, you know, why did I have that extra piece of cake last night? And why did I have that eighth piece of pizza? You know, that's what was going through his head. That's what the look on his face was saying. The second runner was this lady, and bless her heart, she, she had on those old gray sweatpants, remember those, you know, and uh, this baggy kind of sweatpants and sweatshirt, and uh, she also was wearing regular tennis shoes, and, and she was doing one of those kind of run-walk things, you know what I'm talking about, that people do like they're moving their arms, and you know, they got their feet bent. So this lady's going, you know, and, and, and I just, I mean, I looked at her and I was just like, God bless you. You know, I wanted to honk, you know, like, go girl, you know, kind of a thing, just because she was just, she was trying, you know, so, so much out there. But as I watched these first two, I thought to myself, I wondered what made them get out of bed and decide to run. I wondered, I wonder if I'll see them tomorrow. You know, I wonder if they'll be back or was this like a one-time thing, you know, that they were just going to give up in, in, uh, at the end of this. But the third guy, well, he was a runner. You could just tell. He had those, you know, nylon shorts, those obscene nylon shorts that, you know, like are way too short and the tank top and the expensive lightweight weight tennis shoes. And he had this bounce in his step. Like his whole appearance, his whole pace, the bounce portrayed this, I live to run. I enjoy running. I'm out here because I want to be out here. Why do I bring this up? Well, if I was going to compare the Apostle Paul and his race for Jesus to these runners, I would say that Paul was a combination of all three. Sometimes I think Paul looked like that first guy that he he didn't really, Paul didn't have the outward appearance of the runner. He didn't have this this great outward appearance. Paul had this, you know, they they talked about tradition says that, you know, he had these kind of runny eyes that he maybe had some kind of an eye problem. He was bow-legged. He was short, kind of a scrawny type of guy, which totally blew my whole picture of Paul because when I was in uh, middle school and going to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and on Thursday nights, I mean, this was amazing. On Thursday nights, that was their midweek Bible study. 
And all these young people, junior high and high schoolers, I'd be one of them, would come and we would sit on the floor in the auditorium. And the auditorium sits like 2,000 people and it would be packed. And then there'd be all these kids on the floor, just sitting on the floor and all up on the, by the stage and just sitting there to listen to Pastor Chuck. And I used to think, I bet you, I bet you Paul looked like him. I pictured, when I, when I listened to Chuck, I pictured the Apostle Paul, you know, just talking to me. And then I found out that Paul was scrawny and had these runny eyes and was bow-legged. And Chuck was kind of bow-legged, in fact. Um, I went to Calvary Costa Mesa in middle school. I think it was uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, I think I went there. Maybe seventh grade, I can't remember. But in sixth grade, we had a flag football team. And one, one day we were playing against the staff and Chuck was playing with us out there on the football field. And they did a sweep right and Chuck was playing halfback and he got the ball and he got past the line and I was playing safety. And so it was just me and Pastor Chuck that was just left, you know, before to get to the goal line. And so I'm ready and he's running right at me and I'm waiting for him to make some kind of a move. He just ran me over. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> scored a touchdown. And years later, I, I asked him, he goes, do you remember that? And he's big smile. He's like, oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. But, uh, but I think sometimes, you know, that, that was, you know, Paul didn't, he, Paul wouldn't have, he, he wouldn't have looked, you know, had the look of the hipster pastors today. You know, it just wasn't, wasn't his thing. Sometimes Paul was trudging along like this lady. You, were, you listen to him, you know, in his letters, and sometimes it feels like he's just barely making progress. In fact, I think there's times where you could think that Chuck, I mean, that Paul just seemed like, you know, he's running against the wind. The wind was always in his face. But I think Paul always had the attitude, though, of this third guy, that he was running for Jesus, he was serving Jesus, that Jesus was who he lived for. Paul would say in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, tonight in the passage before us, we're going to answer the question, what kept Paul going? And as we unpack the answer to this question, I think we're also going to see some insights of what should keep us going in this race that we're running for Jesus. So let's pick it up here in verse 6. Paul writes, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Pause there and give me your attention. What kept Paul going? Number one, it was his understanding of God's purpose. And here he, Paul likens the believer in Jesus to an earthen vessel. Another way to say that would be a clay pot. You know, and I'm talking about like those orange clay pots that you can get at Home Depot, you know, that just like they cost a buck fifty. I mean, they're just this, you know, there's nothing fancy about them. That's the picture that Paul's painting here. That God has put this treasure, the treasure of his son in these earthen vessels. Who's the earthen vessels? That's us. The earthen vessels of our lives. Now, that's not very flattering, is it? That's kind of a blow to your ego, you know, that God looks and says, you know, you're just kind of a clay pot. But this is such a great picture. 
Because the clay pot, that earthen vessel, is meant to hold something. If I, I meant to bring one of those clay pots um, with me tonight and use it up here as a prop and set it here. And if you would see it, you would say, okay, there's no reason for that to be there. I mean, there's no, like nothing pretty about it. It's just one of those ugly orange pots because it's not meant to be decorative. It's meant to hold something. And that's the same thing is true about you and I. We've been made to hold someone, not just something. We've been hold to so, hold someone. We've been, hold, been made to hold God by his Holy Spirit. God places the treasure of his son into the clay pots of our lives. And, but think about, this is like placing the hope diamond in a trash bag. It's like, who would do that? You know, something of that value, you put it in, you know, a very nice case or a gold box, not a brown bag, you know, where people are wondering, like, what is in that, you know? But that's what God has done. He's put the treasure of his son into the clay pots of our lives. And therefore, it's a mystery indeed as to why God would do that. Why would he put the treasure of his son into the clay pots of our lives? But the reason becomes evident as God works in our lives. And this is what Paul discovered, is that the attraction is not in the packaging but it's in the contents. That's what he says here in verse seven. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, circle this word in your Bible, that's the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The whole thing is about contrast. The, you have the weakness and the frailty of the package, and it's the weakness and the frailty of the package that only magnifies the greatness of what is inside, especially when something supernatural happens, when God does something amazing, when God brings transformation, when God does something through the likes of someone like us. I mean, think of it this way. It would be like taking a beat-up old Ford Focus. If you drive a Ford Focus, I'm sorry. I mean, no offense to you. But, but it would be like taking a beat-up old Ford Focus and putting a supercharged turbo engine in it, okay? And so you pull up at the light. Next to you is, you know, some guy in one of those fancy sports cars, and you give him the look. You know that look? You know what I mean I'm talking about? Kind of rev your engine a little bit. You give him the look and he gives you the look back and his look is saying, you're on and the light turns green and you punch it and you just blow him out of the water. You leave him in the dust. And so he pulls up at the next light and he rolls down his window and you roll down your window and what does he ask? What do you got in that thing, right? That's the idea. Is that when God's moving and working in our lives, when God is using our lives, the response is like, what's in him? What's in her? What do they have that I don't have? That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's perspective was this. God puts his son into these ordinary clay pots so that the world can see the power is from God and not of us. And through that, Jesus gets glorified. Now, Paul's going to share three things that he understood about God's desire to be glorified in our lives. Three things. Here's the first. That God's power gets manifested in our weaknesses. God's power gets manifested 
It's seen, it gets put on display, in other words, in our weaknesses. And Paul uses his own life. He says in verse 8, For we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, I want you to catch this. Notice the weakness of the pot. Paul says we are hard-pressed. He says that we are perplexed. The idea there is we are at our wit's end. He says that we are persecuted. He says that we are knocked down. That's the weakness of the pots. That's us. That's what happens to us. We get knocked down and and perplexed and, and pressed. But then on the other hand, he shows the power of God. Notice again, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Can I get an amen to that? He says, we are perplexed. We're at our wit's end, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Paul is saying that that whatever we go through, and we go through these hard times, that this is an opportunity in those hard times. It's an opportunity for God to shine, his power to shine forth through the breaking of the vessel. In fact, you could say this, the light of God's son that is seen in us, that is placed in us, is seen the most. It shines the brightest when the, when the pot gets cracked, when the pot gets broken. Brokenness is sometimes the means of God getting out of us what he's put into us. Or it's the means through which he gets us going in his direction. In our lives. And it's ironic that most things in our culture lose their value. I want you to think about this. Most things in our culture lose their value when they get broken. They're of less value when they get cracked or marred. Most things in our culture, that is true of. You can go, I don't know when your trash day is, mine is tomorrow, but if I took a walk tomorrow morning and walked through my neighborhood, I would see a lot of broken things in trash cans that are being discarded. That's what we do with them. That's how our culture views that which is broken. They lose their value, but not the Christian. In fact, it's awesome to know that God puts a premium. I want you to catch this. God puts a premium on broken things and broken people. That's why I'm always reminding you that we are not a group of perfect people. None of us have arrived. We are all broken people who are in the process of being transformed by a loving redeemer. But the great thing about that is our God, he puts a premium on broken things and broken people. Let me read to you from Psalm 51 verse 17. It says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise, the idea is you will not turn from a broken and humbled heart. That's how God, he's drawn to brokenness. Brokenness leads to humbleness, that leads to dependency, and those are two traits that are attractive to God. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Feeling broken tonight? Hey, that's a great place to be because the Bible says that God is near He draws near to the brokenhearted. So oftentimes, as we go through life, if we're honest, 
We go through life wanting to be protected from dangers and difficulties and brokenness. You know, we want to approach life sort of like a, a ride at Disneyland where we can have a little bit of adventure, a little bit of being frightened, but we come out of it untouched, maybe a little wet, you know, because of the splash or whatever. But that's not the way that life works. That's not the way that God works. Brokenness is a part of the Christian life. It's the means through which God's power is revealed in us. And God doesn't give us a menu when it comes to this. It's not like that you can order it up. Well, I'll I'll take a few afflictions, but I don't want to be knocked down. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, give me two afflictions, Jerry, or whatever that guy's name is, you know, on Jeopardy or whatever. I'll take two for, you know, 200. No, it doesn't work that way. No, we get what God sends. We get whatever he allows. And he's using that in our life because he wants to be magnified in our weakness. Difficulty comes, but we're never destroyed. We're never knocked out. And that's Paul's point. His power is manifested in our weakness. So the first thing that we see about Paul's perspective of God's purpose is that God's power is manifested in our weakness. The second thing we see is God's son is manifested in our constant dying. Look at verse 10. He says, always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Here's what Paul clearly understood. The more that Paul died... The more that Paul was broken, and the idea of, I'm talking about dying to his flesh, the more that Paul died, the more opportunity that Jesus had to be seen. The more that Paul suffered, the more difficulty that he went through, the more opportunity there was for the life of Jesus to be seen in his life. And this is really a a paradox that dying, Paul's telling us, leads to life. Dying leads to life. Paul understood something that I think we need to understand that in and of himself, he had nothing to offer to those who were in bondage or those who were in darkness or those who were in need. Paul understood that the more he died, the more that Jesus would be seen in him. That dying produces real living. It's why Paul would say this, Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, by, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that I have been crucified. Another place Paul put it this way, I die daily. Every day I'm dying to my flesh. You know, my grandson, Josiah, lives with us. He's three. And he, in his speech, he oftentimes gets his B's and D's mixed up. And so every morning when I'm leaving the house, I'll say to him, bye, Josiah. And he calls me Poppy. I say, bye, Josiah. And he says, die, Poppy. <laughs> die, Poppy. And the first time I heard it, I'm like, no, no, it's bye. And then, and then after I was like, that's a good reminder for me. I need to die today, you know? So every day he reminds me, die, Poppy. Okay, yeah, I got to die to my flesh. Okay, God, help me die to my flesh, you know, type of a thing. Such a good remember. 
reminder. So the first thing that we see about Paul's perspective of God's purpose is that God's power is manifested in our weakness. Secondly, that God's son is manifested in our constant dying. Third, God's life is manifested through our sacrifice. Look at verse 12. He says, so then death is working in us, but life in you. You see, what Paul was understanding in all these places that he went and that he suffered and he went through difficulty, death was happening to him, sometimes quite literally, but life was the result of what happened to others. You know, it was the piano craftsman Theodore Steinway who said that it's the 40,000 pounds of pressure exerted on the 245 strings of a piano that creates a beautiful harmony. And sometimes, you know what, it's the pressure and it's the persecution that we undergo that causes this song to resonate from our hearts that blesses those who hear it. You know, some of the best songs that have ever been written have been written in times of despair. Remember that song we we sing sometimes? It's such a classic. It is well with my soul. You know, the guy who wrote that, I can't remember his name, but he he wrote that after hearing that his wife and kids had died. He was on a ship trying to get to them and, and, and finding out that they had died and, and, and he, God gave him this song that's such a beautiful song that has comforted so many. And Paul knew this. This is why he could say the suffering that we go through produces death in us but life in you. The suffering that Paul encountered brought a credibility to his message. Paul was beaten to death He was stoned. He was jailed. And he kept coming back. And the response would be like, okay, we got to listen to this guy. Remember Lystra? Paul goes to Lystra. And they didn't like what he was saying. And they literally drag him outside the city and they stoned him. They're throwing rocks at him until he died. And all the Christians are standing around because to to them, I mean, Paul looks like he is dead. And I think he was. I think God brought him back to life. And all of a sudden, you know, they're there. They're all crying. They're all mourning. And then Paul, like, opens his eyes, you know, and gets back up. And what does he do? He goes back into Lystra and tells them about Jesus. And you know what? They were like, okay, we better listen to this guy, you know, after that. And you know what came out of that? Timothy. Timothy came out of that encounter. Timothy, who became one of Paul's most trusted disciples. Timothy, of whom Paul would say, is my son in the faith. Timothy, of whom, after Paul pastored the church in Ephesus for three years, and then God was going to move him on, guess who he asked to come in and to lead? Ephesus was the church that Paul pastored the longest. Three years he was there. It was like his baby, if you would. Some places Paul went to, he was there a couple weeks. Other places he was there six months. Another place, 18 months. But, but Ephesus, it was three years. And when he left, he's like, Timothy's going to be your pastor. That's how much he loved that guy. Timothy came to Christ there in Lystra through that whole encounter. It's so, so beautiful. And you know, we love resurrection, don't we? We love to to talk about resurrection, revival. But you know what? You can't have a resurrection until you've had a death. You realize that? 
Can't have a resurrection until you have a death. There's no death. If there's no death, there's no resurrection. And so we need to have a death, death to our agenda, death to our pride, death to our desire. But when we die, God opens up the opportunity for our life to bring life to someone else. So what kept Paul going? Number one, it was his understanding of God's purpose. Number two, it was his hope for the future. Let's pick it up in verse 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, the key word in this paragraph is the word look in verse 18. The word look here is not referring to a casual glance. It's a word that suggests an intense examination. It's a word that that suggests a constant scrutiny or a steady gaze. It's a word that was used for picking up a telescope with the whole point of bringing something that was far into view. A teles- with a telescope, you fix it on a point that is far away and then you work through twisting the knobs to bring it that object into focus. And Paul says that we're not seeking to bring what's temporal into focus. We can see that. But we're seeking to look and to bring what's eternal into focus. Paul was always bringing heaven and glory into focus in his life. Now concerning his hope for the future, Paul reminded himself of two things. The first we see in verse 16 is even though the outward man was perishing, the inward man was being renewed day by day. Do you know the outward man is perishing? You realize that? Your outward man, your outward woman is perishing. Another translation puts it decaying, getting rotten. How many of you realize that? You know that? Okay. <laughs> so make sure like you're not living in la-la land. You know that that, you know, there's the commercial, one of those, I can't remember which one it was, but you know, it says, you're not getting older, you're just getting better. That's not true. <laughs> we're, we're getting older. You know, they say 30s, their 40s, a new 30. That's not true, you know. They can try to say that 50s, a new 40, 60s, 100s, a new 20, you know, whatever. No, it's, it's, it's not true. We're getting older. No, we're not getting better. Gravity sets in. Muscles start sagging. It takes longer to get into shape. If you, you know, ever try to get back into the gym, a lot longer to get in shape, and you can get out of shape really, really quick. Just a couple weeks, and everything's gone. I mean, it's just it's so sad. Been there, done that too many times. But Paul declares that he doesn't lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, he doesn't lose heart. Why? Because day by day, his heart, his inner man is being renewed. His inner man's being renovated. Every day, my inward man is being renewed, he says, by the Lord. The physician reminds me that the outward man, 
physical man, he, he's dying. But the inward man is growing. The inward man is, is being renewed and becoming more and more alive in Jesus. And every single day, think about this. Years ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman. How do you remember Stephen Curtis Chapman? Okay. If you don't know, um, he was sort of the, like the Chris Tomlin of a while ago. You know, <laughs> I don't know how long ago I'm dating myself, but, but uh, he wrote a song. I, I literally, when I was in Oregon, I, I, I preached a whole message. I did use the Bible, but I preached a whole message on this song he wrote called The Great Adventure because that's what our life is in Jesus. It is. It's a great adventure, you know? You want me to sing it? No, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. That would be sad. But anyway, so in verse 17, notice what he says. The affliction is producing something of eternal weights. He uses the word working, and, it, and the idea is it's working to completion. It's finishing something. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a work in you, good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul rejoiced in that. His hope was in that. Hey, my outward man is perishing, but the inward man, God's doing something. He's being renewed. Day by day. You know, last week I love um, the verse that you guys looked at last week when Aaron was teaching in chapter 3 where, I think it's 318 where it says that we, as we're beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being renewed day by day. And the idea is as we look at Jesus, as we're drawing near to Jesus, God, it's doing something in us. It's renewing us. It's, it's making us like Jesus. So the second thing that Paul reminded himself of was that our, our future is brighter than our present. Look at verse 18 again. He says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, everybody say seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, this body, grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul realized that his afflictions for Christ... His afflictions for Christ's sake were, were adding up to an eternal reward. Now, I find it interesting, really ironic, that he calls his affliction in verse 17 light affliction. And the, the whole idea here is it's, it's meant to be something of a contrast. That this side of eternity, when it comes to our afflictions, they never seem light, do they? I mean, who's, well, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if you're being afflicted tonight, you're you're not at all going, oh, this is a light affliction. No big deal, you know. 
No, it's been said the, the biggest trial is always the one that you're in, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, that's the greatest trial, the one I'm in right now. You know, it's like, when is this going to end? And, and it's, it's the, the heaviest thing. That's how we look at it. This is, man, this is the heaviest thing I've ever encountered before. That's how, how it feels in the moments. But remember what Paul had already said back in chapter 4, verse 8, when he says that he felt at times where he was hard-pressed on every side. There, there were times where it almost killed him. That's how Paul felt in the moment. But as he looked at it now, as he looked back at it, he was able, he realized that it doesn't compare, and this is the key, with the glory that awaited him. He calls it an eternal weight of glory. Or another way to say that is a glory that is weighty. It's weighty. That's what's waiting for us. I love what he says in Romans 8, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What Paul's telling us is, hey, what's coming is far greater than anything that we've experienced here so that in comparison, our worst trial that we're going through right now is gonna seem like a light affliction in light of the greatness of eternity. Paul's telling us the present is temporal, but the future is eternal. The present is right now filled with, it is filled at times with joy and happiness, but it's also filled with a lot of pain and a lot of affliction and a lot of sorrow and a lot of trials. But the future is only going to be filled with joy and happiness and glory. And in the present, we're reminded every single day that our bodies, these, these temporal bodies, are dying. And here in chapter 5, Paul likens the body to being like a tent. And you know this. Tents are meant to be temporal. It's sad right now. We have a lot of people living in tents. People that have lost their homes. Back in November, Denise and I got away for a couple days and we were up in Redondo Beach and there's this uh, bike trail that goes along the, the coast. It's a beautiful 22-mile bike ride one way and, and it goes all the way from Redondo all the way up through Venice. And we hit Venice Beach and it blew my mind because it was tent town. There was just tents everywhere all over the beach. And you know what? I would venture to say, I think I could say with confidence that 90% of those people that were living in those tents would have loved to have traded the tent for a home, for a room, for warmth. Because tents, tents are meant to be temporal. Tents wear out. You got to buy a new one every couple of years because they wear out if you use it a lot. And this is what Paul's saying is, is that these bodies, this is a tent. This is like a tent. It's temporal. But what's waiting for us is so much better. He says in verse five, for we know that if this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so he says, 
or Jesus put it this way in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus says, hey, in my Father's house, there's many mansions. And we hear that and we think, awesome, man, 20,000 square feet in a swimming pool. And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that's what these bodies are going to be like. Our bodies that are no longer going to be limited by the things that we're limited by here. Our bodies that are not going to feel the pain. Paul says, you know, right now in these tents we groan. How many of you groaned when you woke up this morning and got out of bed? Okay. Every day I wake up, my hip hurts, my feet hurt. I get up and, you know, I'm, I'm walking for the first five minutes like I'm 90 years old, you know. It's the saddest picture ever, you know. I'm just kind of shuffling my way until every seat starts to, to warm up again. Our body's grown right now. This body was made for planet Earth and planet Earth only. That's why when we go into the ocean... And we want to go, you know, 100 feet down. We need scuba gear because our body wasn't meant to do that. When we go up into space, we need a spacesuit because our body wasn't made to go into space. So we have a body right now that's made for planet Earth. And, but what we're going to receive in glory is a body that's been made for heaven. That this mortal, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal is going to put on immortality it's going to be amazing it's going to be awesome no more pain no more limitations can eat all you want and not gain weight <laughs> hey we're, we're going we're having a marriage feast in heaven right i mean you know it's going to be i think it's going to be some good food <laughs> that we have to look forward to now some of you might be thinking pastor rob this just sounds too good to be true well it is good and it is true, and we can bank on it, and here's how we know that we can bank on it. Actually, this is verse five. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, note that, who has also given us his spirit, the spirit, as a guarantee. Paul says, look, I've given you my Holy Spirit as a guarantee so that you can bank on it, so you can know this promise is coming and it's true and, and, and it's, it is for you. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The word there is down payments. So it's like what we do when we're gonna buy something that we can't you know, just pull out a wad of cash for. So what do we do? We put down a, a down payment. And that assures whoever, you know, that we're buying it from that, that we're serious, that we're going to come through, that we're going to get the loan or we're going to get, you know, whatever it takes in order to, to buy that. And that's what God's saying. Look, I'm serious about this and I've given you my Holy Spirit as a down payment. But you know what's interesting? That word guarantee in that culture was also used for an engagement ring. And I want you to think about this. What does a young man do when he finds the girl of his dreams that he wants to marry? He realizes, you know, man, I love her. 
You know, our, our student ministry pastor, Aaron, he found the girl of his dreams, Ellen Martinez. And uh, we kept, you know, bugging him like, Aaron, when are you, come on, when are you going to, when are you going to propose? And he's like, I'm saving up for the ring, you know. And that's what happens. I got to save up so I can get that ring. And guys, you know, they'll, they'll sell their guitar. They'll sell, you know, their bike. They'll sell their surfboard. Surfers are going, no, they won't. They won't sell that, you know. But they'll sell things. They'll sell their brother and sister if they can, you know, in order to, to save up enough to get that ring. And then they get down on a knee and they say, look, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I love you. And they open up that box and present it to her and she gets all flattered. And what is he saying? He's saying, this is my guarantee that I'm going to come through on this promise. That's what this means from God's standpoint. He's the groom saying, you're my bride. I'm engaged to you. I'm giving you this engagement ring so that you know I'm going to come through on this promise. We're going to be together. But I want you to think about the whole idea, the whole concept of the engagement ring from the standpoint of the girl. Have you ever thought about this? The guy doesn't get an engagement ring. He's not going around wearing a ring for six months or a year or whatever, however long the engagement is. But she is. The girl is. And what is that engagement ring communicating? It's communicating something to her. You know, when she's alone, and she's feeling lonely, and maybe her groom-to-be, let's say he's in the military, and he's off, you know, in some other part of the world, and she looks down at that engagement ring, and it's like a reminder, I'm not going to be lonely forever. I'm not going to be lonely for long. When she's, you know, in bed and it's a cold night and she's got that electric blanket pulled up, you know, and she looks at that ring as she pulls it up, she thinks, you know what, I'm not going to need this electric blanket pretty soon because there's going to be a warm body in this bed next to me. It's communicating to her this longing on her heart. And I think this is also what the Lord is saying to you and I. He says, I'm giving you my, my engagement ring, the Holy Spirit in you. And I believe the Holy Spirit in our hearts is constantly reminding us that this world is not our home. He's constantly seeking to remind us this is not it. This is why you can have the best experience whatsoever here on earth. You can go and have a great vacation somewhere or experience some amazing thing. And shortly after that, you're just filled with some discontentment again. Why is that? Because it's the Holy Spirit reminding you this isn't it. As great as that was, this isn't it. God's got something better for you. And it's called heaven. It's called glory. It's called being with your bridegroom, Jesus. So Paul was able to keep on going because, number one, his perspective on God's promise. Number two, his hope for the future. Number three, because he walked by faith and not by sight. Look at verse six. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether to be present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's what we talked about last Sunday. This judgment of rewards. 
But Paul lived with a confidence in the promise of God. And because of that, he walked by faith and not by sight. You know, sight can be very deceiving, can't it? You know, things in this life can look so deceiving. Many things are just not what they seem. I remember um, one time, I think it was being either at a fair or being at Disneyland, and I think it was my mom or whoever I was with, you know, said that I could buy one thing, one treat. And I remember looking, and I wanted the biggest thing. And guess what the biggest thing was? Cotton candy. You know, that big old blue thing on that stick. And I thought, I want one of those. That just looks amazing. That looks so filling. You ever had cotton candy? It's horrible. For one, it doesn't fill you up. It like dissolves in your mouth. And then your fingers get all sticky and your mouth gets, it's just, it's just horrible. But it's deceiving. I mean, it looks like, oh, it looks like it's going to be amazing. It's going to be so filling. A lot of things in this life can, can appear like that. There's things in this life that, that can seem like something that they're not, like plastic fruit. Have you ever, I've actually done this. I've, I've seen some plastic fruit that was so good looking. It looked so authentic that I picked an apple up and actually thought it was an apple and tried to bite it, and it wasn't. And it's so disappointing. And so many things in this life, it's like, oh, that looks amazing, and then, so you try to partake of it, and you're like, oh, that wasn't what I thought it was. That didn't taste the way I thought it was. Paul was not allowing his life to be impacted or dictated by what he could see, but in a trust in the word of God and the heart of God. That he had his faith. He was walking by faith, trusting in the Lord and believing God for his reward. Let me read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul said this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith, and finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day, and not to me only, but to also all of those who have loved his appearing. Listen, don't miss this. For Paul, heaven wasn't just a destination, it was a motivation. It was what motivated him. He was walking by faith and not by sight. Because he wasn't just focused on what he could see, but his heart was focused on what he could not see. So Paul kept going because his, of his perspective on, of God's purpose, his hope for the future, because he walked by faith and not by sight. And number four, because he had a message to preach. Look at verse 11. We'll end here tonight. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord that we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord. Again, so we're talking about on Sunday. Knowing there's a judgment coming. We persuade men. Remember I mentioned to you that there is a judgment coming for those who reject Jesus and it's a judgment of condemnation. They're going to be judged. People that don't know Jesus will spend eternity being separated from God in a place the Bible describes as, as a place of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a eternal darkness, a fire so hot but you don't burn. And Paul says, knowing that, we seek to persuade men. 
to embrace Jesus. You see, Paul didn't quit. Paul kept getting back up again because he knew, hey, there's people that need to be saved. There's people that need to be reached. I might get knocked down, but I'm going to get right back up because there's lives that need to be touched. So as we wrap up tonight, I want to ask you this question. Are you running? Are you in the race? Or have you stopped? Are you just kicking back? Do you have it in neutral? Well, you can't do that in the Christian life. In the Christian life, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. Got to be moving forward. Got to be running. Second question, how are you running? Are you just barely getting by in your race with Jesus? I heard Damien Kyle say once that we need to make sure that we're running not just to run, but we're running to win. We'll see. Or we saw that in Paul's heart. He talks about he's running this race with an aim and a purpose. He's running to win. That's what God wants for us. Knowing, knowing that, hey, God's got a purpose. The difficulties we're going through, it's so that his glory can be manifested. Knowing that, hey, this world's not my home. Heaven is waiting for me. We run, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, the writer of Hebrews chapter 12 says. And I love this, because the writer of Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, laying aside the weights and the sin, let's run this race with endurance, because Jesus, he endured the cross. And I've shared this with you before, when it says that Jesus endured, it's, it's not the idea that he just Barely made it. That's, that's how we think of enduring, you know. We barely made it. To, oh, I endured that. It was so hard. That, that's not what that word means. Jesus might have looked like that on the cross, but we know on the cross, that word, the word in the Greek is actually the word hupomaneo. Let me hear you say that. Hupomaneo. Okay, you learn some Greek tonight. That word literally means to conquer. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was conquering on our behalf. And the reason why that's so special is because you and I, we can be conquerors as we're running because Jesus conquered for us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for this picture that we see in Paul, this glorious hope that we have of heaven. And Lord, tonight we want to just rejoice in that tonight. Lord, we want to be those who are running well, like the Apostle Paul, running to win. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight and pray, God, that you would just continue to minister to our hearts as we just take this time right now to just wait upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.